Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series on careers in the atmospheric and related sciences. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Jason Emanuel, and we will be your hosts. Our podcast series will give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, Tony Prano, a chief engineer and meteorologist at IBM Research in Yorktown Heights, New York. Welcome, Tony. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Tony, tell us a little bit about your educational background. Did you start off majoring in atmospheric sciences or did you switch majors? So I guess a little bit of both. I have a sort of a, a longer story and um, I'll try to keep it succinct. Um, I had originally intended to major in meteorology uh, back in, uh, I guess I'm dating myself here, back in the 70s. Uh, and, in, and at that time, uh, as a result of limitations in job choices and local college availability, uh, I, I, I pursued that for a while, but ultimately changed my major to engineering. I had passion both for meteorology since childhood as well as engineering, taking things apart and putting them back together. So while it was, it was somewhat of a, um, maybe a difficult decision at the time to make that switch, um, in hindsight, it was probably one of the best choices I could make. And I'm hoping that as we get further through the process here, that'll become more apparent. But I did indeed start off major, majoring in meteorology, but ultimately changed my major to engineering. Yeah, that seems like a good choice. So outside of school and coursework, did you pursue any opportunities that you knew would help secure a job in your field? Uh, I guess more in, in, the, in the sense of in hindsight, um, at the time, you know, allied skills and engineering and software weren't as uh, perhaps as critical and as um, as obvious uh, for the field of atmospheric sciences and meteorology as they are now. Mm -hmm. But having the background in engineering that I have, and in particular, both on the hardware side and perhaps more importantly, on the software side, uh, those really were the skills and experiences that were ultimately uh, critical to my my path back to the atmospheric sciences about 20 years ago and uh, the work ever since. Uh, what exactly are the skills on the software side that you developed? So I would say mostly coding and programming. And, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll admit here as, as sort of a, um, uh, a further connection to the AMS that I serve on a couple of AMS committees, uh, the AMS Board of Private Sector Meteorologists, as well as on um, the Ad Hoc Committee on um, uh, Career Advancement and Enhancement uh, for, for the AMS. And mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I'm focusing on these days in, in writing some documentation that hopefully will be, uh, you know, will be shared with the AMS Centennial Committee is indeed um, the skills requirements around, uh, you know, allied skills such as software. So in particular, as I mentioned, things like coding. Uh, when I started out um, in the field, uh, a lot of the work that I did when we started the Deep Thunder Project in IBM about 19 years ago, uh, I was using Perl to do a lot of automation. Uh, and essentially wrote a good portion of the automation background that runs the, uh, the that runs the Deep Thunder model and has run it for for many years. Uh, the past few years we've switched to Python. So when I speak to undergraduate students, and I do indeed do some outreach in some of the local universities here, do some adjunct uh, presentations. Uh, I do mention sort of programming and Python in particular, since that in the atmospheric science field is is quickly becoming, I think, one of the standard programming languages, if not the standard for for, uh, you know, for people to, to do a various tasks. And then one of the great things about Python, it's relatively easy to learn. Um, and, 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 you know, people, uh, students and professionals can actually, uh, you know, do quite a bit with it. Mm -hmm. What was your first job in the field? How, and how did you end up at IBM? 
So my first job actually in the field of engineering predates IBM. Um, I started out in biomedical engineering. And to this day, that's, that's an area of strong interest for me. I worked at a company that made, um, you know, uh, biomedical instruments, EEGs, EKGs, uh, and things along those lines. Um, all along, however, I, I'd grown up in the area where IBM research is, um, is located, Yorktown Heights, New York. That's about 35 miles north of New York City. I grew up in that area, and I remember, you know, very early on driving by the lab. And while I didn't know exactly what went on in the building, it's an iconic building designed by um, a, you know, world-renowned architect. Uh, I knew they did some pretty cool stuff there, and I always wanted to work there. And while it took several tries over the years, uh, I did indeed uh, make it into IBM research. But my first, uh, my first work was on the biomedical side, uh, I, and then I worked for um, for a short time for a company right across the street from IBM's headquarters in Armonk, New York, that made computer-aided design systems. All the while, obviously, um, you know, uh, still uh, pursuing my, my dream and my goal to work at IBM Research. And I, I uh, did indeed uh, begin working in, in, in IBM Research. And again, I'm dating myself in 1983. I've been there ever since. I guess I'm a, what would be called as a sort of a research person. And while there's many opportunities within IBM, different divisions and different areas one could go in, I was always driven by my passion for the research environment, research and development. And so I spent the first half of my career in IBM doing more traditional engineering. In particular, um, all of the, um, the disk storage systems and disk drives in computers and in servers that we all take for granted. Storage has become extremely cheap and it enables a lot of the modeling that we do. We're generating, as, as, as you probably know, terabytes and petabytes of data. Those are all supported by the storage systems. And so, uh, that was my first, uh, basically, I've done two things at IBM Research, and one was storage systems, research and development. In the second half of my career, my passion in life has been meteorology and the atmospheric sciences for about the last 19, uh, 19 and a half years. So you had said it took a couple of tries to get into IBM. What, um, what advice would you give to someone who is looking for a job? What finally worked for you? So, uh, you know, again, I have to predicate this by, by indicating that um, it's Perhaps the, the, the workforce and the requirements were quite a bit different back in 1983 than they are now. The research lab in particular uh, was a, is and was, was and is, I should say, a world-renowned um, location. We are probably the last industrial research lab of the scale, both across the globe as well as in multidisciplinary research that exists. Um, and so in those days, coming into the lab with an undergraduate degree, was a, a lot more challenging than it is now. These days, uh, to come into the lab with an undergraduate degree or, or master's level graduate degree is, is, is much more, um, it's a much uh, more straightforward process. And so these days for, um, for the uh, workforce that uh, IBM brings into the research division, we have you know, any number of skills uh, on the software side, obviously, um, as well as the hard sciences like physics and, and, and chemistry, material science and engineering. And to some degree, uh, a good representation in, in the atmospheric sciences. Uh, what what our listeners may not be aware of is um, IBM, you know, acquired the weather company in 2015. So I, I I am not I'm not kidding when I say we went from probably three or four meteorologists in IBM, and I was I'm proud to be named as one of those, to probably well over a hundred, between 100 and 200 meteorologists when IBM hired uh, acquired the weather company in, in 2015. So. The atmospheric sciences in particular have really grown in, a, in quite, a, quite a bit over the last several years. I think there's a real recognition in the private sector 
of the importance of the atmospheric and environmental sciences and how the allied fields can can obviously um, you know contribute to and become an integral part of that. So I guess you're saying it was more difficult back then um, to get a position there. So good for you. You managed to persevere <laughs> and uh, meet the right people and, and get a job. Yes. It was, I guess to, to summarize, yes, it was much more difficult to come into IBM research the way I did in those days than it, than it is now. That's, that's certainly the case. Yeah, that's great. You got to like realize that dream of working at IBM, though. And you had mentioned like different education levels or degrees that people get to work there now. But in your current position, what level of education is required to be like a chief engineer or meteorologist at IBM or even a different company? So, again, I guess I'm, I'm going to provide a little bit of background for my particular case. Mm -hmm. um, I have uh, not only was my my journey to the atmospheric sciences through engineering probably somewhat less traditional. And I think in that sense, hopefully gives our listeners a, a you know, a, a flavor for the breadth and different experiences people have and, and the opportunities that present themselves. I did most of my undergraduate and graduate education while I was working at IBM. So I essentially went to night school. I completed my undergraduate and graduate degrees in electrical and computer engineering while I was working. And then thereafter, I completed a certification in meteorology from the U.S. Department of Agricultural's Graduate School. That, that course sequence, unfortunately, no longer uh, exists. It probably ended a few years ago because of uh, perhaps the, the numbers weren't great enough. The unique, as the, the unique um, aspect of that program, however, was it is um, and was recognized by both the AMS and the, and, and the, the government, NOAA and the National Weather Service, as being the equivalent to an undergraduate degree in meteorology. And that's in particular because it's a rigorous um, calculus-based physics approach. Since I had already had all of the undergraduate mathematics and physics, as well as graduate level mathematics and physics, I essentially only had to backfill the, the uh, meteorology courses, which I was able to do via the, 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 the distance program. And again, that program probably goes back long enough that it was paper-based. Uh, we did communicate via email, but it's not these days as, as you know, many uh, early career professionals and students may be, or it's much easier to do um, online education. Uh, in those days, that was not indeed, you know, that was certainly not the case. But my, my approach to that certainly was less traditional, uh, perhaps, than, uh, than it is today. But having said that, you know, uh, I would say undergraduate requirements uh, in computer science, engineering, or meteorology with programming skills and experience, obviously, are, are I think are extremely important these days for private sector, uh, you know, atmospheric scientists and meteorologists, as well as those that perhaps may be in allied fields that are interested in working in the atmospheric sciences. Thanks. That's great to know. So what's your typical day on the job like at IBM? What do you usually do? So one of my responsibilities among several is I'm, you know, as, as, as is the case by my title, the chief engineer, I'm, I'm responsible for all the systems engineering of the, um, of the infrastructure we have. So that includes two high performance computing clusters. Uh, those clusters are used to support our numerical weather prediction, modeling, research and development. So I mentioned earlier the, the work in, in, in running uh, local models. So one of the, uh, I think, the hallmarks of the Deep Thunder project, which again, we started um, in 2000, we developed an operational model that we began running in 2001 for the New York City metropolitan area. That's run with the exception, unfortunately, of a, of, of a one-year gap that we had about a year and a half ago when we had to move to uh, a new hardware platform, ran continuously 
you know, during that whole time, that that model, uh, the Deep Thunder model for New York City, uh, was down to one or two kilometer resolution. At back in two thousand one, running at one to two kilometer resolution was unheard of operationally. There was some certainly some work in academia and, and in the government, and perhaps at NCAR, but operational uh, instances of a model running at you know, extremely high resolution, even to this day, one to two kilometers is not common for operational numerical weather prediction. Uh, that was, you know, that was really the, the, the leading edge of, of um, you know, of the capabilities. And so uh, in order to do that, one must have a, uh, a high performance computing cluster, better known perhaps as a supercomputer. And these are not just a group of servers, but these are, this is a, um, uh, uh, you know, many hundreds of cores, uh, of processors that allow one to uh, decompose a local geography into a, into a, um, a, a topology that a weather model can actually operate on, and we actually run the you know the physical in- equations of the atmosphere. So this is what's known as a um, a deterministic model. It's not statistical. It's it's not uh, AI. Uh, I know those are two very you know uh, uh, common and uh, popular approaches to different modeling uh, techniques these days. This is a full physics um, deterministic model of the atmosphere. So those clusters are critical to actually uh, being able to run the model and also support our R&D. So in, in, in addition to the clusters, there's probably a, you know, a few dozen servers that uh, we also run in workstations that enable uh, my research group to actually do the work that they do. So how many people are in your group? My group is known as the Environmental Sciences uh, Research Group, and that includes both folks on the atmospheric sciences side as well as... Um, People on uh, you know do, that do research into um, into environmental uh, modeling around water bodies, so freshwater bodies like lakes, for instance. And we're probably about a dozen to a dozen and a half um, of us um, on the core research team, and they're spread out among uh, a couple of IBM labs. Most of us are located in Yorktown Heights. Uh, we do have a, a good number of our of our um, uh, team that are also uh, you know remote. They're based uh, remotely. Uh, a couple of our um, my colleagues are based at Lake George up in New York. I'll probably give a little plug here for one of the projects that I've been working on, known as the um, the Jefferson Project on Lake George. That's an extremely, uh, it's, it's perhaps in my tenure at IBM, I would say probably one of the best projects and teams that I've had the uh, the um, the you know the opportunity to work with, and that's really that that merges both atmospheric as well as uh, freshwater sciences with the ultimate goal of understanding the ecology of a of a water body. In this case, Lake George, which is a fairly pristine. Uh, water body, and it serves as a benchmark for some of the other work we do in other geographies in, in understanding and modeling the challenges uh, around, you know, freshwater body ecosystems, you know, everything from the weather to the water to the uh, ecosystem, including, you know, the, um, you know, the biological uh, activities that go on in the lake. Sounds really cool. And so you've mentioned Deep Thunder a couple of times. Could you just give like a, a layperson's summary or overview of what it is? So Deep Thunder is it's our um, instantiation of a high-resolution mesoscale numerical weather prediction model. So if you will, these days, again, a, uh, a term that's used a lot is hyperlocal. So it would be a hyperlocal weather prediction system. Mm-hmm. And, it, and that allows us, obviously, to focus uh, at a very you know, local scale to, uh, to impacts of the weather. Um, and one of the things that um, when, when I get the chance to speak to clients, and that, that does occur from time to time, um, I like to say that... Um, it, it's really not about the weather at the end of the day. And I get a lot of raised eyebrows because people look at me and say, yeah, but you're a meteorologist. Why would you say it's not about the weather? <laughs> because from a business perspective or even from a societal perspective, it's how the weather affects 
the things that we care about. So whether that includes, you know, if I'm going to bring a jacket when I go out today or an umbrella, or it, 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 um, it impacts my supply chain. If I'm a surface transportation company and I have to ship product, but I have to be aware of the weather impacts on the road system and delays or detours that that may cause. So um, the, the, um, the ability to forecast at an extremely local scale allows one to zoom in on of types of problems. If it's a coastal area, it might be storm surge. Uh, it might be a runoff for a, a, a heavy rainstorm. It could be, um, uh, you know, thunderstorm activity uh, that may have impacts on electrical distribution grid. Um, those really are, you know, the, the things that happen at a local scale, even though we all understand that obviously weather, uh, weather spans many scales from obviously global to continental to regional to our local scales. And Understanding what happens at a local scale, and more importantly, not only what happens from a weather perspective, but what the impacts of that are on any number of things that, you know, that we care about or that a business is focused on is really part of the work that we do in developing solutions and applications for our work with clients. Right. That's a really good point. So it sounds like you have your hand in a lot of different projects. Do you have a favorite thing about your job or probably the favorite thing about my job is I get to do a lot of different things. I'm, 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 I'm this sort of person that probably would get bored doing the same thing. Mm. And I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to one of the, my initial comments about starting off in the atmospheric sciences, um, and then switching to engineering, you know, back in those times, um, I think people in general, and as a, as a young person and as a student, I was less aware of the, um, all of the different kinds of opportunities that are available in the atmospheric sciences. I really had no notion of atmospheric sciences research. To me, what a meteorologist did was um, operational meteorology or forecasting. And while I had a, I had a strong interest in that, um, I was unaware of the other things that a meteorologist could do. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that the ability these days uh, to go from you know working on uh, developing a solution for a client uh, writing code uh, to enable that, keeping the, um, the computing systems and high-performance computing clusters running, and then speaking to clients and understanding their business needs and, and the impacts they have are probably uh, some of the most interesting things that I do and allows me to span everything from having a screwdriver in my hand to make sure the hardware continues to run to getting in front of a, uh, of a client and helping them understand how the work that I do in local scale weather modeling uh, impacts their operations and perhaps can provide a solution that'll better enable them to run their business. Mm -hmm. What are some of the challenges you encounter in your work? I think from a, 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 a daily perspective, um, the, the challenges I think uh, include um, uh, balancing their time between perhaps things that need to get done now, but maybe lower impact. For instance, if a server goes down and it's part of the R&D infrastructure, I may have to drop what I'm doing to um, to work through that with our systems admin, and if, if need be, call in the um, you know the hardware engineers to uh, repair it, and perhaps then I've had to drop some application development I was doing, or if I'm working on a um, uh, input to a client proposal or to a research um, you know to a research um, uh, proposal, I may have to put that down. So sometimes balancing that because um, because I'm supporting a you know a, a, on a daily basis a um, a hardware software infrastructure can be a challenge. Um, so I guess, you know, those lower, those low impact ta tasks that may be time sensitive with the higher level work that may have longer time horizons, but obviously has, um, can have a, a higher impact. So I would say if, if I had to choose one thing, it would be, you know, that, you know, striking that balance and 
that balance can change almost on a daily basis. Speaking of balance at the workplace, it sounds like you keep very busy, but does your job allow for a good work-life balance? Yes, it does. Uh, so uh, one of the things that uh, for me personally that is extremely important is, uh, is flexibility and autonomy. And I would say that I have, I have a, a good amount of that. So I have the flexibility to, um, you know, to set my, my schedule on a daily and weekly basis. Obviously, there's some, there's some constraints around that. Again, if, if a server goes down or if one of the, the HPC clusters goes down, I have to drop everything and get into that. But um, generally speaking, I have a fair amount of flexibility, you know, in how I schedule the work that I do, how I collaborate with colleagues and my team. And um, that, that really provides for, for a good balance. Are there shifts or is it mostly a nine to five type work environment? For the research division, it's, it's I, I guess it'd be considered, you know, a single shift. Obviously, my day, uh, my day can go anywhere from, you know, eight hours to 12 hours or, or longer, depending on, on what I'm working on. I tend to be more of a um, uh, of a of a, a later morning, afternoon, and evening person. I'm not I'm not up at the crack of dawn, uh, but you know I'm I'm I may be online in the evening, either checking on a system if need be, or or, or following up on emails, you know, at 10 p.m. at night. But having that flexibility allows me to do that. So I would say for research, it's generally a single shift, but obviously people have a lot of latitude and flexibility about how they you know how they uh, utilize the time. Well, that's really good. That's important to a lot of people to be able to have that flexibility. Is there anything you wish you had done differently in your career? Uh, perhaps um, recognize sooner the importance of allied, the, uh, allied skills required. Um, as I mentioned, however, I think it was less obvious in the 70s and 80s, um, uh, and certainly uh, most likely less, in, less important than it is now. I, I don't want to minimize the importance of obviously those allied skills back then, certainly on the software side, but I think there's be really been an explosion of, of the requirements around um, programming and, and allied skills these days. And in fact, a lot of that I've, I've been able, I've had the opportunity to focus on, learn more about in the work that I'm doing both in the AMS uh, BPSM committee, as well as in the um, committee on career advancement and enhancement for the centennial, uh, really understanding and, 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 and watching the, the growth and the importance of those allied skills. So from my perspective, over the arc of my career, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, it, it, it worked out for me in a way that perhaps I couldn't have predicted. I mean, I, I joke that sometimes that if I had tried to design or plan my career, I probably couldn't have done a better job. Um, so to some degree, um, I view it as, um, as to, to take an atmospheric, uh, I guess, analogy, uh, if we think of the, the Pineapple Express off the West Coast, which is the, the atmospheric river that drives moisture up to the Pacific Northwest, that has a general flow and direction. But along the way, there's all these little swirls and eddies, low pressure systems and local disturbances that, that occur. I mean, in the, in the arc of a, of a long career, there, there were some, you know, some minor detours or some things along the way that, that, that allowed me to or perhaps forced me to focus on other things. But the direction that my skill base and experience and career has led me to, really, when I look back on it, has been extremely gratifying and, and, and something that I would not change. So from that perspective, um, I think just understanding the importance of those skills and having a, a broader look at the field, I think, perhaps would have been something that um, I wish I would have recognized sooner. 
So um, I don't know if you've ever done any hiring in the past, but if somebody really wanted to be, you know, their goal was to be a chief engineer with a meteorology focus, what are some of the things that you would look for on a resume where you'd be like, oh, this person's a really good fit? Um, I know you mentioned some of the allied skills, but is there anything else that you would look for? I think if someone were looking to, to uh, you know, for a position such as mine, which would be, I guess, a fairly senior position, and in my case, you know, comes about from many, many years of experience and, and different kinds of opportunities, in addition to the software skills, I think a, a, broad, a broad view of the field, understanding the connections of meteorology, business, and technology, I think uh, it, it, that probably puts succinctly what I described earlier. So understanding the trends, but is also understanding the ability or the, um, the, the, the nexus, if you will, between atmospheric sciences, uh, the business world, and the technological world. Um, one of the things that um, I like to stress to, again, to students when I get the chance to speak with them is I think today it's probably more true than certainly it has been historically, creating our own opportunities from a synthesis of skills and experiences really is um, is not only um, important, but arguably critical, but one of the great things about the, the, current, uh, the current market, the market's understanding in private industry in particular, the uh, private in, uh, sector's understanding of uh, the connection between these other skills and allied fields, including you know, software and programming, um, and then understanding how an individual's um, experiences and skills uh, you know, create perhaps a, uh, an opportunity that might be unique to that, um, to that individual. And perhaps then the, the, the challenge then becomes if you're on an interview or if you're applying for a job, communicating how um, you as, an, uh, as a candidate, your skills and your experience, your unique set of skills and experiences creates value for, you know, for, a, um, for the business. So you would say that, you know, if somebody is going for a meteorology degree, it'd be good for them to take some business classes, some computer courses, maybe some communication classes and just be well-rounded. And um, I'm assuming that internships are looked upon favorably if people do internships in um, certain areas that, you know, you would find that to be very positive. Yes, I would say internships are... Um not not only not 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 a just a nice thing to have anymore. I think they're almost um, critical, and I think it's certainly um, for any student or you know undergraduate or graduate student having those experiences. I think create you know really provides um, an advantage. Um, IBM Research we have a pretty um, uh, robust and um, uh, you know longstanding uh, intern program that includes both what we call long term interns that may span a year or two to our summer program where we bring undergraduate and graduate students in for several months in, in any number of uh, different areas. Uh, this year, I think in our team, we have, um, we have one student. Um, he actually, his background is in engineering. So that in particular just shows that, um, you know, the connection of an allied, uh, you know, an allied field with environmental uh, science research is, uh, is, you know, certainly one that, that happens, uh, quite commonly. Um, so really understanding the, the, the connection of the atmospheric sciences to almost everything and the grown, growing environmental impact over time with climate change, urbanization, and coastal development, I think, really provides, I think, a, a, a strong need for, um, you know, for the future workforce to have these skills in any number of areas. And I guess to circle back to your earlier comments, um, Kelly, about you know, uh, different fields, uh, we all know how challenging it is at an undergraduate level 
you know, uh, to have enough of a breadth of experience. Given the limited number of electives that a student may have the opportunity, leveraging things like internships or outside, uh, you know, outside interests and outside pursuits educationally, I think is important. Um, because quite frankly, uh, there's probably not enough um, electives available for an undergraduate student in the atmospheric sciences to take, you know, a couple of business courses and programming courses. I suppose if I had to choose an area, um, I would probably be biased to more the technology side and the software side, because I see that all the time, not only in um, the work that we do in research, but even in uh, the work that the, uh, the weather company business unit does at IBM and bringing, um, you know, bringing new employees in, bringing new team members on, you know, having that background and experience in, um, even if it's not programming per se, but the uh, information technology skills that go beyond, you know, go beyond the standard stuff like spreadsheets and word processors and, and perhaps things like, you know, things, things of, of that nature to more perhaps, um, uh, you know, more knowledge in things like how can, um, how can the cloud enable me to develop so solutions? Maybe I don't know how to program a cloud application, but understanding the connection between my, um, my particular area of discipline, be it atmospheric science, perhaps, or, or, um, solutions development or software engineering, understanding how these, you know, these particular disciplines can be, can connect to create a solution. I think having that broad view or having a broader view, uh, better known perhaps in the field as lateral thinking, sort of, you know, coming out of the silo and thinking across disciplines and across sectors, you know, having that broad view, I think is extremely important and developing that as, you know, as a student or as an early career professional. I would advise as being, in, you know, perhaps something that could could serve someone well, not only for the company they work for, but perhaps, you know, over the course of their career. That's definitely some good advice. And because you have such a broad perspective on the industry, how do you see the future job market for careers in your field? I, I think it's I think the market is is, is extremely bright, and, and and I think it's uh, if anything it's it's getting better when you think about how one the, the, both the needs in the private sector. Uh, you know, from an atmospheric science and environmental science perspective, mm -hmm. and how the allied fields like you know the other sciences and engineering and computer science can can um, can work together to create new you know new solutions and new capabilities. Uh, when I when I see that and I see the recognition of the and perhaps the stronger word for recognition the the, the critical need for those skills. In, 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 uh, the private sector related to both atmospheric and environmental sciences, I think, I think, you know, things are looking very bright going forward. And it's more perhaps the challenge, I think, is more perhaps helping the academic community, uh, uh, better prepare students for the requirements for perhaps a broader set of, uh, um, skills. And this isn't unique to the atmospheric sciences. We see the same thing in the engineering disciplines. The limited amount of flexibility in, in uh, engineering curricula and similarly, an act, uh, atmospheric curricula to be able to um, to weave in those those other skills and those allied fields in order to prepare you know the future uh, the future workforce. I think that's a challenge in, in perhaps um, all the STEM areas that um, that we really are working hard to try to address. It's, I certainly know it's one the AMS is looking at from an atmospheric sciences perspective, but really understanding um, you know and working with the academic uh, you know uh, the academic sector. To better prepare our students, uh, I think that's that's the real, perhaps the real focus and challenge. But I think from an employability standpoint, uh, it, to me, it, you know, the future looks very bright. Yeah, that's the direction AMS is hoping to go in here, where we 
talk to, you know, faculty advisors, students, and people in the private sector, getting them to have a conversation so that all on the same page as, as to what um, skills are needed to give students the best opportunity to get positions once they graduate. So, Tony, we always ask our guests one last question at the end of each of our podcasts. So what is your favorite band or musician and why? Okay. Um, this is an easy one for me, although my, my music tastes uh, are, can be eclectic and, and broad. Um, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, so the Beatles, that's my band. Oh, yeah, that's, my favorite, that's my favorite band, too. Good choice. <laughs> one of the great things about the Beatles, if I could digress for a moment, is the, you talk about the evolution and the span of her career in, in a little over a decade, if one listens, and Kelly, I know you probably have, listens to the early stuff and listens to the later stuff, uh, it, to this day, it still blows my mind that four, you know, a, a group of four you know, young people could evolve that quickly uh, you know, in a, from a, in a musical sense. Um, and again, when I look at, when I try to use the analogy to other careers, being able to, to, to evolve and to um, not only change with the times, but in the case of the Beatles, actually, you know, force that change, mm -hmm. I think, was one of the unique things that, that follows me. I have a lot of bands that I, both on the rock side, but I, you know, I enjoy classical music. I enjoy ambient music. I enjoy, you know, jazz. Uh, I don't claim to be a, you know, a musical expert. I mean, I'm, I'm probably, you know, heavily weighted on the rock side, but um, the Beatles stand out to me because of, you know, that, that evolution, that, that it's just so unique. I completely agree. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Tony, and sharing your work experiences. That's our show for today. Please join us next time, rain or shine.